Welcome to AIGA's Fireside Chat. Thank you for joining us. Please connect with us and share your thoughts. The hashtags for this fireside are AIGA design and future of design. It is my pleasure to welcome Benny F. Johnson, AIGA's executive director, and today's guest, designer, Randy Hunt. Benny? Thank you, Amy, and welcome all to today's episode or edition, if you will, of our design and leadership fireside talks. Today, we have a special guest, and we've jokingly said, design never sleeps, but it is uniquely aware of time zone differences. So for the first time, we have a fireside chat. Randy is coming live from Singapore, and I'm broadcasting from D.C., so it gives you a sense of our global scale and reach today. But I'm happy to bring with us uh, Randy Hunt, who needs no introduction, but I'm, I love to talk about the fact that he's an award-winning designer. He's an entrepreneur. Fast Company has deemed him one of the most creative people in business and the companies and organizations that he's led. He's an adventurer, and he's really a, a student of thinking about the future of design and work. Randy most recently headed up design for Grab. And Grab is considered one of the super apps based in Singapore. He's led a team that he grew of more than 130 product designers, researchers, writers, engineers, problem solvers, illustrators, overseeing the group's businesses that meet every essential human need, transportation, food and grocery delivery, logistics, digital banking, financial services, and telemedicine. Uh, Grab was listed number two as one of the companies changing the world and having a positive impact over the last two years of the pandemic. Prior to his adventure at Grab in Singapore, he was head of design for Artsy platform and head of design for Etsy. Randy has been an entrepreneur, um, award winner at Etsy. His work won the Cooper Hewitt National Design Award for corporate and institutional advancement. He's also an author of, project, uh, of product design for the web in which he explores the evolving discipline of product for today's designers. He also co-founded Supermarket, a curated design marketplace. It's in this capacity. And as we talk about, Randy has been for years an active writer, critic, and visiting designer at many colleges and universities as well. So without further ado, I introduce to our fireside, the one and only Randy Hunt. Welcome, good sir. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Hello, everyone. <laughs> it's, it's really great to have you here. And, you know, in our conversations, I'd like to start off with this question. One of the things that I noticed it's really been a throughput in your career, whether it was supermarket, the curated designs marketplace, or your work at Etsy, or even some of the work that you've done at Grab, there's this notion of economic empowerment through design. You know, speak a bit about that and how that's been a throughput over the years that you, it really shows up when you look back over your career in those, those spaces. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, nice, nice insight. Yeah. Well, I think also when you look back, uh, you know, the path can really, ra you know, rational or it all kind of like makes sense, you know, right. course, it as, it's, as it's happening, it didn't necessarily feel that way all the time. Although maybe underneath there were some interests or, or themes. Yeah. And I right. think that for, for me personally, um, when I was much younger, I was, you know, I had started several different small businesses. I started and ran a record label, ran a small design studio, um, some other things that kind of predate, you know, right. the things you listed in, in the introduction. And that 
was really meaningful experience for me in that it felt um felt both creative from sort of a problem solving standpoint like right. running these businesses and starting them um but it also felt really kind of like liberating or empowering to be um i don't know kind of a more full agency over what was happening, you know, to make decisions that, that mattered and to decide what to focus on and do was always just active to me, like at that stage of my life. And, um, maybe it channeled some of my like punk rock energy into something right. like, like really product productive or something. You know? Uh, and so I was really attracted to that at a very like personal level. And then, uh, I started to, I think just kind of become aware of the fact that many other people, um, have that same experience or have that same uh, desire to have that same experience. You know, that's a, uh, this, you know, I've got this uh, business idea and I want to get it off the ground or I have this product idea. And, you know, I think that the, that appeal was something I could relate to and understood was often more sort of universal uh, yeah. at that level. Then I think the next layer as, as time passed, I see that uh, maybe my understanding of the world gets a little more nuanced and sophisticated right. and probably less self-centered. And, you know, you start to understand, or I started to, uh, you know, understand that the, um, you know, the way in which we can like earn money essentially, or sort of like create value and be compensated for it in the context of sort of how our economic system works uh, is, there are like a lot of constraints and sort of a lot of opportunities. And sometimes it is difficult for people to pass from like one to the other, you know, to go from the environment of, of constraints to the environment of like seeing this as possibilities and having that same thing I saw as kind of like creative self-expression. They might also see that way it leads to like a fulfilling uh, life experience, maybe to sort of drive one's own um, uh, sort of, uh, making one's living right like sort of on your own terms and uh at doing work that helps enable that became like very meaningful or appealing to me and so that was i suppose if we zoom way out we could call it design which is okay we were talking about design to big scale but I, I but i think that uh in a much simpler way it was just like what these businesses were about you know, like the, the nature of kind of a marketplace business, you know, and I've been involved in many marketplace businesses. You have some like supply side of this marketplace that has some service to offer or goods to sell. And when the people operating that supply side of the marketplace are individuals and small businesses, um, the success of the whole enterprise is predicated on creating success for all of these individuals and small businesses. And that I find very meaningful work. It relates to that path of kind of moving from one economic position to another and, you know, the freedom to uh, kind of control one's, uh, make one's living on, on one's, one's terms or more so. Um, and I found that easy to wake up every day and be motivated to work on in a really simple way. I'm like, yep, I can feel proud of that work in that context. And I think that has been probably led right. to a series of decisions over time that looks to keep working on that. You know? <laughs> yeah. So when you think about this, in really this conversation at the, micro, at the micro level, when you went to Grab, you're listed as one of the fastest growing startups. So moving in scale, 
but still talking about yeah. impact in lives in Southeast Asia in, in ways that you can become a part of Grab's mission and platform. So what were the biggest challenges you had from going from, you know, working with the smaller businesses in a very direct way to this larger platform? Mm, yeah. So I think the, um, well, the challenges are many, <laughs> yeah. but I think the, one, while the platform is larger, meaning there are more participants in, in the marketplace, right? Uh, both the general consumers consuming the services as well as people you know, supplying them. So maybe we'll take a very specific example that everyone can relate to at this point. I think after two years of, you know, lockdowns and quarantines and working from home, like, like food delivery you know, as one of the services that we offer, right. um, you know, headquartered in Singapore, but actually across Southeast Asia and eight different right. countries. So Indonesia, Malaysia, um, Thailand, Vietnam, Philippines, um, Cambodia, and then actually uh, Myanmar, which of course are, business in Myanmar is in a very different position after the overthrow of the government there, you know, some wild things that happen in other parts of the world. Um, the, uh, so in the context of like food delivery, uh, a vast majority of the food businesses that people are buying from, you know, through our software platform are extremely small businesses. Um, sure. There's a, you know, there's a chain restaurant, as well as sure there's maybe McDonald's right. or a Jollibee or something. And that, that exists as well, but the vast, vast majority of them majority are, of your um, platform, right. You know, what we would call like a mom and pop shop in the States or something, but you know, uh, what that looks like is sometimes a food, like a food cart, you know, um, like a non-permanent food cart, uh, on the side of the road in, uh, you know, in like Jakarta in Indonesia or something. Right. Um, and the, the challenges are less about the scale in terms of the size, but I would say the challenges are about the variety of customers and their needs and experiences because of that size. So we have this very informal food cart example, right? Which is very likely owned and operated by the same person who does all of the work. Like they're buying the raw ingredients on their way to their cart. They're pushing the cart around. They're making the food. They're selling it. The entire thing is happening with this one individual. Uh, and then in, at the same time, you might have a small restaurant also in Jakarta, you know, or someone who maybe owns three or four small restaurants in Jakarta. These are still pretty informal. They may have even been primarily cash businesses 24 months ago or something. Um, wow. Family, that you know, family owned and operated. And then you might have someone in Singapore that right. is a small restaurant group right? Which is still in like a global sense, very much a like smaller medium business, right? But you might have restaurant managers at five locations. This, they might have, you know, 50, 60, 70 employees across these multiple locations. And the, the, what you need to create as a software experience to enable all of the transactions to happen for those different kinds of users are pretty radically different, even though to you or I, if we were going to order food from them, We'd probably pull up a menu. We'd search for maybe what we liked, or we'd see what was close. You'd say, I like that delivery time. You hit order. So the consumer experience is similar-ish. But underneath, those businesses and the conditions they're operating in are pretty radically different. Uh, and that, I think, is where some of the biggest challenges is kind of the what we would call like hyper-localization. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, I, you know, it, it's really telling for, for everyone in our, our audience. 
Randy was stateside and you decided to take this adventure to, to pack up and take on this business challenge to move to Singapore. So I have two questions for you. Like, you know, how did you feel about taking this leap? And two, what, how has this experience made you a better designer and design leader? Mm. I mean, I felt both, you know, nervous and excited, right? Or I suppose like anxious in both, you know, all senses of the term. Yeah. Um, it was a, like I was ready to experience something different at a professional level. Right? Um, and that was, I think, driven by feeling like I had, um, you know, I, I, my experience has been that I have like very steep growth curves and then things will kind of like level out and you have to drive, you have to create change to experience some other kind of growth uh, experience, right? Sometimes it's in the same company or role, sometimes switching companies or industries. And I felt like I was at one of those places. So I got very curious about how I could create like some radical growth. And uh, as I looked around at the other possibilities that seemed more obvious to me or natural based on my geography, the industry I was working in, my existing network, these things, um, none of them felt very radical, you know, and kind of like done a number of that were similar and were quite you know, successful through various, you know, commercial lenses or my own qualitative assessment of them for like how proud we are of the output and, and things like that. And uh, so started to look further afield, both conceptually or like metaphorically, and then it ended up being like quite literally on the opposite side of the planet. Um, and that was very, like, very intentional to, right change context in a pretty like radical way. Uh, and so I was also feeling quite like, while nervous, also proud of it, I think for myself, for being willing to take the risk or something like that. You know? right. Yeah. 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 Um, well, the, the second part of your question was, uh, uh, how did this make, make me, I think a better like design leader, better leader. No, I think that the, mm, The cultural context is one very different. And so I think that just forces your, you to be even more adaptable, more open-minded. You know, I consider myself a quite like open-minded person. And, uh, but, but yeah, the cultural context is just different and it forces, you know, uh, lots of different interesting learnings from life experience. And we could dig, right. dig into those or something. The, the other is, I, I think that it. um, Helped me see that the like even more that there are like there are many ways to accomplish things, you know. There are many like methods, many approaches, and there's not really like right. a a way, you know. And you can arrive at um, good outcomes through a number of means, and also that the what identifies something as you know a good outcome can also change in the in the context, you know. Um, uh, both like the cultural context, but also the industry, the moment of time in that industry. Um, yes, a number, a number of things. So I think it left me feeling uh, less certain, right. but in a good way. Yeah, right. I'm like uh, even even more open, I suppose. Yep, Came more open to to the change in the space in there. So yep. you know, one of the things that I thought was really interesting when you look at. Actually, we're going to do a couple of things. We're going to we're going to go back a little bit. 
Um, I was reading one of the pieces you wrote almost about 10 years ago now in Fast Company. And it was your thoughts on design. And it was this conversation about cleverness and how sometimes we may, in, in love of our own design, get in the way of our true impact in space with, with being overly clever. I, I love, I love for you to give me a couple words on that. It's been about 10 years since you wrote that piece for Fast Company. And I wonder if you, you still feel those things. For those who haven't had a chance to check it out, I, I give you a reading assignment for this weekend to check out Randy's piece. Yeah, um, yeah it's interesting. Okay, so and, this- and, and, I, and I took you back. That, that was a surprise for you because I, I read that. Yeah, and, yeah no, it's okay. <laughs> um, I mean, that, that particular sort of art, article, if you will, this like essay is a- um, uh, expanded upon in the book that I, that I wrote that was published in maybe 2013 or something to kind of place that in time. So yeah, even that's, uh, yeah, almost a day ago. The, so the, the point I was making in this piece was really around the, like based off observations I'd have, uh, around common behaviors that were happening in the industry at the time, particularly with many new people coming into what like the software design space, right, often right. from other design fields and disciplines. Um, and this is still happening today, but it's, you know, things have evolved again in, in many ways with a, I think more of an emphasis on what today I would call, you know, like brand design or something like that. And maybe sometimes putting an overemphasis on the, the stylistic layer of the designed experience, um, from the writing standpoint, you know, kind of sometimes missing utility um, or compromising utility uh, a bit much, by my opinion, you know, for the sake of uh, trying to be expressive and things. So there's a bit of a argument for a, a more rationalized like approach to creating the the software experience. I believe this is still a good point of view in general. However. I think we've also arrived at a place, and maybe this is, is in fact relevant to the experience we were just talking about, like here in here in Southeast Asia, where when when you're trying to establish, I believe, like new behaviors for you know customers, consumers, users, whatever the terminology might be, your audience, uh, sometimes like being like very clear and direct and simplifying and kind of like letting the things be what they are without dressing them up too much can be effective in helping people truly understand the thing, which is different than maybe making the thing attractive to them or capturing their attention to want to understand the thing. So this is a distinction, yeah. But this real, this like directness allows you to, I think, uh, sort of educate in a way implicitly, you know, the thing is so kind of simple and clear and it says what it does you know, it's all, all quite straightforward. Um, the the challenge, though, with this approach, if I could like disagree with my past self or get more nuanced, yeah, is that uh, one is the point I, I, I made. I, about love, I love it. People, to, right. yeah, right. <laughs> like, and, and, and that's I think it must be appealing. Yeah, I, I wanted. When did you have the chance to do that? It's always good to <laughs> kind of challenge our own words and think about it. So yeah, go for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I think the thing must be appealing, right? right. There, there's the and that the stylistic layer plays a role in um, creating like 
an attraction or a desire or curiosity or interest that might bring one to use, try, engage with something. The other from sort of like a business standpoint and kind of like a competitive standpoint is that, you know, if I rewind 10, 15 years, the kinds of things we were working on were in many cases very novel. Like they were, if not the first, they were very early in a kind of experience like this. And in some cases, like like an Etsy or something, it was one of the first sort of like successful like social commerce things in that like generation. You would see like an older experience, something like eBay or something that was evolving. But kind of at this moment in time, it was a bit of a standard bear, right? Um, but as time passes, those things that are or novel and new start to become normalized. Even they kind of like spread into the culture, like right. other products, right. business and services start to adopt those same patterns because they sort of work. And then because they're adopted, they become normal, you know, and they it, it all starts to feel like default, right? And the same, that's really good from like a usability standpoint. I can kind of move around between a number of things and expect them to work similarly. I think we're seeing something like this right now with the kind of like TikTok style, like full screen, but like flip the video to the next thing or, you know, Instagram stories, like the side thing that was happening in Snap. But there's a few of these behaviors that start to become so normal and you see them somewhere else and you automatically know how to do them. That's great. Uh, the problem from like a business standpoint uh, is that the, the thing I was maybe advocating against, the cleverness uh, and things like that, things that make the experience maybe more unique, which could potentially be less straightforward, like a little more poetry in the experience, also maybe what distinguishes it from other things that are largely similar, right? right? And so now becomes a point of differentiation. Um, if you're looking at sort of commodity products in a way, if I think about the things I was working on at, at Grab, at some level they were, there's like, you know, we were the leader in nearly every category and every market we were operating in, but that doesn't mean there weren't competitors. And to, you know, deliver food from A to B or provide some service is largely a, a commodity service. Like you can, you know, other people can offer the same thing. You know, you might eat on price, but at some level, if you're just competing on price, you know, down, 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 that doesn't fit the model. So you have to become attractive and appealing to the customer for other reasons. Yeah. So then you're wanting to distinguish yourself and be different. And so all of those, you know, uh, if you reduce the thing to its pure utility, the most straightforward, understandable, usable part of it, and have massaged out the sense of uh, things that might create an emotional relationship for the consumer, you're sort of missing the opportunity from like a business strategy standpoint to um, attract or retain customers um, without essentially like buying their loyalty with cheaper prices or discounts or something like that. Yeah. Now, when, when we think about that kind of maturation arc, right, coming in on platforms where they're new and new ideas, that's something that's, that's another thing that's been a hallmark of your career, being early in creating the spaces. We've been talking a bit about, you know, what's next on the horizon in our conversations and firesides. And a lot of the conversations have stemmed around design's role and problem solving in the fintech space or kind of next level of engagement around that. What, what are some of your thoughts about what's next for design as we think about these other opportunities? 
Yeah, sure. I mean, gosh, there's a lot. There's a lot yeah. happening. You know, at some level, it's you know, designs moment. It kind of feels like that. Um, it, it, it really it's, does. It's happening yeah. over and over again, but it feels like one of those moments now. Um, I think we can't ignore the sort of macroeconomic conditions that inform that that have to do with like you know, uh, particularly as we look at at the technology parts of this space because of the funding models and, and venture capital and the potential for you know software scale businesses to operate extremely efficiently you know uh, as they mature that you know uh there's a lot of capital looking for places to go that has the potential to you know have greater returns than elsewhere so there ends up being a lot of money flowing through the system which means a lot of um you know there's just a lot of activity you know, ha happening and happening very quickly and lots of people taking risks and bets. That's an important, you know, the context that some of this is, is happening in. Right. And, uh, and that's why you see, like, I think it, ex right. yeah, explosion of like fintech stuff uh, is, I think in part because the space had moved slower for a while, you know? Um, but the other part is like with lots of capital reserves uh, and things uh, that, that feel different than even like a decade ago or something, you know? smaller like upstart game companies can do things like lend money you know these sort of like uh klarna and you know atome and these kind of pay later services that have kind of come out of nowhere right i feel like they've come out of nowhere in the last like four or five years and are now you know interest-free for installment payments kinds of thing you know it's like highly you know competitive space super hot really fast um that's very interesting to see I'm not saying it's good. I'm saying it's interesting. <laughs> yeah. um, right. Because right. they uh, get rapid changes in consumer behavior uh, powered by like the availability of software, its willingness to, you know, to take risks, to market itself very aggressively. Uh, but at the same time, it is forming maybe habits or expectations of consumers. It's offering a product that, you know, through the criticisms is effectively like, you know, um, Un, unsecured, um, uh, you know, loan loans effectively like high interest loans. If you, if you default on these things, and some would argue creates like spending patterns that are unhealthy or a relationship with those spending patterns are unhealthy. Others say like this is amazing. People are getting like approved for a short term, you know, um, financing on something that wouldn't get approved otherwise, you know, because we're not going through typical kind of like, you know, um, credit approval processes and, thing, and things like that. So it, I think that's very interesting. Uh, what is happening, just an example of these kind of like pay, pay later services, the larger space, the, uh, what, maybe what is most interesting about that is how fast it has happened. Right. And then how, uh, like how fast the businesses like come to exist, grow, are copied in a way, you know, the business model is replicated, whether it's, you know, across regions. Hey, this is working in that, you know, this is working in mainland Europe. Let's do it in Australia. Fast, boom, same idea. You know, before the competitor expands globally, we're going to like do it in the local market and get a stronghold. You see this happening like very, very quickly. Uh, but the other is actually, you know, the, the regulatory conversation around these things, right? You know, is quite dynamic as well, which I find also interesting. Again, not necessarily good or bad. Um, Sometimes yes, good or bad, but like largely, I find it very intellectually interesting. Um, and in some cases, we feel like you know the regulation is very slow and trails the kind of business innovation. But in other cases, like regulators are acting quite 
quickly in some cases and maybe like aggressively in some you know cases and in some markets and um i think that makes for a very exciting climate to go sort of be working in yeah um so and so many so many of these ventures are from the start design richly design driven we've been saying before that that they're they're starting in they're not waiting to grow into being designed forward many of these ventures are starting this is true yes and i think you're seeing um there is a it more often you're seeing some they, they, i would say the baseline level of sort of the design execution the user experience thinking the kind of like customer experience lens being elevated quite early right uh which is super cool to see but interestingly i think many of these organizations many of these brands or businesses or products then hit another you know we've like made this amazing thing happen where like often the design is there at the beginning um they're competing from a brand positioning standpoint very early as well these brands are like dynamic nicely executed you know in-house teams and right design firms and studios around the world are doing like you know exceptionally good work on on some of this stuff it's like really really cool to see it. um but as they grow and scale there's um still seems to be a lack of um almost like the industry can't support the organizational needs and the growth needs as quickly as they're happening in the businesses right so i mean the the number of sort of like head of design vp of design job openings at many of these organizations is kind of baffling right while they struggle to i think find and make successful the qualified candidates i don't actually think there's a lack of the qualified candidates but i think the i mean maybe in any particular market or niche there might there might be a mismatch but there are many many capable people who are qualified for these roles in, in the industry but i think the way that the industry finds identifies and evaluates talent right is somewhat of a mismatch so that's why i say like they can't quite keep up you right know, because what you may need is someone to uh, need to take a risk on the leader because actually the person who is available and capable and interested in that space doesn't have a track record of doing the job before that you need them to do right they're like going to be a first time vp so you have people making like very aggressive business growth choices very conservative like hiring choices like oh we're looking for the person who's done this thing before but some of these things are so novel but there are very few people who can you know that who can say i've done this three times before that, that that's like the battle scars that, to, that's incredible yeah. that's an incredible point that we always see in innovation spaces in there organizations will say they want novel new or innovative but to your point the the default in hiring becomes the classic have you done this before in a space that looks just like it and it's really impossible to do that when the spaces are shaping up the things that we haven't seen before or spacing in a space that there's there hasn't been that space what what advice would you have i mean one of the things that you've been able to do is kind of break through in a global sense what advice would you have for um, members of a design community who are looking to take this next level risk you know what can they do to become their own advocates for jumping into some of these opportunities with success 
It's a great question. I'm I'm slow slowly considering the answer. I think there's this is very kind of like tactical, like practical advice. My first answer, which is I think that the um there are many third parties recruiters that are you know hired by a number of these companies or sometimes they're investors who represent often many roles inside many organizations simultaneously that are um, just an extremely powerful kind of like entry point into the space and i find that you know the mm, these good recruiters or headhunters or whatever you want to you know call them right their interests are quite aligned with yours you know like they want you to get right. the job as well yeah and right, right. The whole the whole model is predicated on that working, you know, um, and so I think in some cases it's like having well just being aware of that. I mean, some people in the design industry are very very aware of this practice and almost like having recruiters work on your behalf, like to take you inbound to you know organizations or connect them with their clients. Um, but if you are not, you should you know look look into that. Maybe we can share some resources with the with the organization leader or something. Um, the and they have likely helped represent and position people with similar backgrounds and skill sets as your own into these kinds of roles before. You know, they're doing this all the time. So they may understand what works from, a, you know, uh, what things to emphasize in the experience or how to, uh, um, who and how to kind of enter the conversation with the with the organizations because um, they know their clients or they know these clients they worked for in the past. They know these rules. They know the personalities of the hiring managers or the founders of the companies and can help you bridge that, you know, so it's not all on the design leaders, you know, um, shoulder in a way. Right? Um, they're, they're kind of expert in that bridge building. And I think a large part of it is around helping see the, it's about potential over experience or potential as much as experience. And so communicating the how it's less about the evidence of have you done this before? And it's more about the evidence of having successfully figured out to do things you have not done before. Right. 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 Like that's the that's the right the key story in the track record. And then it becomes, I think the the positioning becomes more precise around either relevant relevant industry experience relevant personal interests um finding parallels between you know the the specific experience you have and this other experience that maybe the organization may not see but that you can kind of help them understand through like metaphor through storytelling through case studies uh that you know everybody has a customer acquisition problem okay uh everybody has a user retention problem Everybody wants more engagement. Everybody needs to operate the team more efficiently. You know, you know some of these problems and themes are quite similar. Uh, and so, no, it doesn't look like, you know, uh, you don't have 20 years working in like climate tech, right? But you do maybe have experience uh, being a team with a strong reputation, you know, with low attrition in a second tier city where the talent market is smaller and like, oh, that's an interesting position now, you know, that says like, this is a unique match for this organization because they want to build, you know, um, 
they're trying to build team in maybe a lower cost market, or it's very important for their business that they're geographically located around the same thing. You have experience in places like that. Yeah. So I think it's about kind of like, you know, uh, finding the less obvious, um, um, but relevant, um, evidence, you know, that, that kind of fills in the gap between experience and potential. Yeah. So thinking about potential, we're going to spend a bit to look at the year ahead. What gets you excited, my brother, about 2022? We're closing out the year now, and, and we have this whole new year ahead of us. And from your perspective as a design leader and a strategist, what, what are you most excited about for 2022? Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, goodness. You know, I think that the... I mean, for sure, I'm, I'm quite excited about the... The, but I think there's a number of emerging technologies that are, or they feel emerging in the like zeitgeist. They've been they've existed in the background for a while, right? Um, that, they're coming into uh, their moment. They are, yeah. Yes, it's kind of like the the end of the beginning in a way for a number of interesting um, technology things. And as a person who works very close to like sort of software product design and technology, like this is meaningful and, and fun to be, you know, I don't know if I'd ever call myself a technologist, but it's close. Yeah. Um, we'll go for it for today. So, yeah. Okay. Uh, so I think, uh, I mean, one sort of like blockchain technology and a number of the things that are kind of loosely under the umbrella of like web three, which, you know, as someone who's like active in the space also doesn't really know how people are defining it. You saw it in the moment, it's gotten kind of like messy. There's been drift, I think, in what the words mean. Um, but I think that uh, this kind of next chapter feels like the next chapter, like a consumer internet level is becoming more prominent that has to do with both, uh, you know, permanent record enabled by blockchain uh, right. anonymity, like right. the potential for anonymity, um, but also the... Um, um, history. So there's an interesting tension of ideas, right? I have a history of all sort of transactions or activities that can be relatively, you know, uh, anonymous is designed to kind of have anonymity, but at the same time, because it's decentralized and I own my, uh, I have agency over my thing. A lot of what we talk about right now is currency, right? It's like, I can be my own bank and like the cryptocurrency lens, but maybe we abstract it even simpler. Like I, I own my account. Right. So as opposed to having like a Google account or a Facebook account, I have my account, you know, and this concept of that account and its identity can be portable right. across different parts of the internet. Right? And so you have anonymity, but you also have like a portable identity. Right? So you could choose to associate that, you know, it could be you, Benny, or it could be you under some pseudonym or you, a string of right. numbers doesn't matter from a technology standpoint uh the tension between these ideas permanent record anonymity portable identity to me is like very intellectually interesting but i think it starts to create um both very interesting experience opportunities we can create potentially value for users to to have more control over their assets and their activity um it also creates i think you know, there's, there's business potential. There's also interesting like risks and interesting. Um, I think it's still a relatively com complex space. 
And right. so as it gets more exposed to the general consumer, it goes back to this effective and clever kind of a dilemma in some way, which is like, how do people understand how to participate in a safe way? Rather they, you know, protect themselves, um, their data, their assets, um, you know, how they sort of live a secure existence in the context of this technology change, um, I think is a very emergent and important space for like user experience designers. Uh, I suspect we'll see a number of the sort of academics and critics who really look at right. things like this through a ethics lens to have a great number of new um, subtopics in a way for to issues to raise, I think to us as like for practitioners to consider and take responsibility for, um, because it seems as though this next chapter that's starting will likely affect a number of things in our lives in ways we have not um, seen yet. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, that's exciting to me. I mean, that's probably where I'm most excited personally and like spending time and energy, but I'm also um, quite enjoying watching the sort of augmented reality space in particular. Okay. Uh, developing because I think we're seeing consumer utility there in 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 like meaningful ways. You know, it's kind of gone beyond prototypes or like niche kind of like you know technologist nerds or industrial applications or military applications to like more everyday uses. Starting to work largely like you know having fun in games and like you know filters and snap and things, but it's starting to um, you know it's, it's starting to find a utility and value, right? It, it, it becomes a little bit more yeah. meaningful, right? It does. It's, it's, it's really, and it inspires, I think, you know, we, we imagine it as somehow, I think it's a common pattern, especially at a consumer level that happens where it's like, it's on the edges, it's like entertainment or it's, you know, these other things, which for a lot of people, it's like, that's not for me, you know, or I don't get it. Uh, then we start to see it come closer with some utility or emotional connection. So yes, we see all like all the fun, you know, face filters on your, on Instagram or something. And, and then, uh, I think the other great example is Google, like walking directions, you know, the Google directions where you, you know, you hold up your phone, you're seeing, you know, the world behind you live through the camera, but augmented with, you know, you should turn down this path and things. I mean, it's quite a sophisticated problem to have resolved. It's really cool. I think the UX of these has done like quite elegantly. So that's great utility in and of itself. But what I find most exciting is that most people experience something like that for the first time. Then they start to like imagine or accept that there are many other yet unrealized possibilities that have similar utility. Right. Um, yeah. This, I think we're seeing the same thing happening in the sort of, you know, cryptocurrency space and, and other things where once someone has a meaningful engagement with it, you know, not news headlines, not hype cycles, not, you know, big numbers or lots of fraud, but a more, you know, intimate experience around it. Um, where they experience something that is either very fun for themselves or it feels like it has utility and they really see like kind of a loop get closed or a transaction happen and how it is different. They become then quite open to, I think, imagining and inviting in the other areas of utility. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's, you know, incredibly powerful. We think about that adoption. So you go through, it's the novelty and it's on the edge and it's the fun. It's what other people are doing to then having these ways that it shows up meaningful. So I, I can't believe we're, we're, we are at the end of our time that we had allotted. I know we, we could sit here and talk forever, but I just appreciate you coming in and I want to invite you 
uh, as we talk about the future. So I'm extending a future invite to you, my friend, to, for us to get together for a fireside this time at the end of next year. And we're going to do this thing that. and look back and see what is okay. wrong and what surprised us. Great. But Randy, I appreciate <laughs> you once again. And I, I invite everybody to join us for our firesides. Today, we were with award-winning designer, entrepreneur, technologist, my friend for today, <laughs> technologist, uh, creator of dynamic brands, you know, looker into the future, builder, um, creator of opportunities for economic empowerment and overall humanitarian. Randy, it's been a pleasure. I appreciate your camaraderie and your insight. And thank you for joining us. Thank you all for joining yeah, us. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it.